This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Renee McDonald, an online clinical counselor and psychotherapist. Renee is also an accredited clinical supervisor, an academic educator, a coach, a speaker, an author, and also the founder of the Australian online therapy training company called AOTT. We discuss online therapy from talking about its fundamentals to the techniques and opportunities used to reimagine healthcare using the approach and how this extends the modern healthcare practice and the relationships with patients, their activated care networks, and even supervisor and peer-to-peer communities around the therapist. Let's jump in. Hey, Renee, thanks for making the time today to come in and speak with me. How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Yanni. Um, I'm great, thanks. And why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, like who you are and what you're doing. Okay, so I'm a counsellor, psychotherapist, coach and educator, pretty much in that order. I work in the online space. I'm an online therapist, uh, clinical supervisor. I also work face-to-face too. So I do about 50% of my practice with people and about 50% of my practice online, whether it's Australia or nationally or internationally. Fantastic. Well, you know, that's a big that's a big part of an evolving paradigm at the moment. So um, tell us a little bit about what online therapy is and potentially we could sort of move into why practitioners should perhaps be thinking more about this going forward. Online therapy in a nutshell is separate to telehealth because telehealth is where you might get rebates for it. Where I work is the space where you don't get rebates, where people can just choose to come to see me. So I'm a trained professional in the online space. I've completed an international qualification in online therapy um, with my British and European counterparts. In addition to that, I'm registered as a professional member of the Association for Counselling and Therapy Online. So that's a big mouthful, but that's ACTO. Um, And so I really care about the outcomes for clients, but I'm always keen to do more study and work to ensure I'm showing people in a nutshell that I care about them and their outcomes and what they've come to therapy in the first place for. It's really quite fascinating because um, you don't necessarily confine yourself to clients from Australia, do you? You you have a client uh, base around the world. What's that like in dealing with, um, you know, are you sort of uh, having to contend with things like uh, cultural differences or perhaps even uh, the way in which we're being trained here in Australia with healthcare versus expectations in other parts of the world? What's what's that been like for you? Okay, so I've actually seen a fair number of expats in parts of Europe. I've seen some expats from Australia who might be living over there. I also now get people contacting me who are therapists who want to set up their online therapy practice internationally as well, which is also interesting, and I do that too. Um, It's been just kind of a little bit organic, to be honest. Um, So the other day I was speaking to someone in South Korea and I've 
supported someone in Cameroon. I guess what that's an indicator of is that um, there is a global demand for uh, yes. online therapy, even though there are economic differences um, parity-wise between countries. It yep. seems as though internet access uh, seems to yes. be uh, universal and available yes. uh, to people yes. all over the place. So your mode of delivery is actually um, everywhere. Are there any real restrictions in people getting access to the internet? Yes, So, um, and, and I actually teach to this, funny enough. So the restrictions are around jurisdiction, legislation and time zone. So probably I'd say it in that order. You know, so, for example, in America and Canada, it's best that I stay away from that because there's all sorts of uh, legal restrictions and uh, legislation and licensing issues in America and Canada in particular. And I don't have insurance for those clients. Um, Australian practitioners can get international insurance, but we can't get it for um, America and Canada. So that's one thing. Um, and then separate to that is then time zone. So say, for example, if I was to see someone like in the South Pacific, they might be in a different day to me. Um, they might be in the day before or they might be ahead of me or it might be someone in Perth I'm seeing. You're then two or three hours difference depending you know, and so my 9am might be there 6am and it might be too early. You Just things like that where you've got to navigate around that kind of stuff. I found it can be tricky with because I've had a number of clients in England, um, for example, because it's quite equivalent. The, the main issue is around the GDPR now. So that's the, um, for the listeners, it's that's the general data protection regulation that's been brought in. So the main thing is we have to have certain privacy um, standards we keep to here. I've been working on a, the Dr. Julian platform and they look after that stuff for me, for example, just things like that. So it's all about, um, you know, making sure you know which rabbit hole you're jumping into, yeah. <laughs> which country am I dealing with and what are their rules around these things. It's it's almost like um, stepping your toe in and then figuring out it out as you go too on some level, being flexible around that. Privacy aside, just in relation to healthcare services, so you talked about mm -hmm. the insurance um, difficulties yeah. in getting insurance for Canada and, uh, and the United yeah. States. If a health practitioner was providing services to, let's say, let's, let's say a US citizen, how would the US actually enforce any of its rules and regulations against um, an Australian therapist? The problem is we, we leave ourselves actually to be open to be sued by the American government. In addition to that, um, we leave ourselves open to the licensing bodies actually giving us a real um, wrap over the knuckles too. So what's really intriguing, and this might be important for, for you to hear directly from me, Yanni, but also the listeners, is groups like Talkspace and BetterHelp, I don't know if you've come across them, but Talkspace and BetterHelp are the two biggest online therapy platforms across the world and they're American-based they can counsel Australians, but we can't counsel them. And they don't allow Australian online therapists onto their platform because they can then, listen to this, they can then bill out their American counsellors at whatever rate they want and then not bill out Australian clinicians here. So so they train them up, they get them licensed and they get all of them to do their training. There's, you know, telemental health training over in America, for example. They get them all trained up in that. 
Um, and then they'd bill them out at like 40 US dollars an hour, which we all know is not that much money in the US because their dollar is often higher than ours, but not that much higher. So it's really not that good a salary in the scheme of things compared to what you might get here. And they're billing that to Australian um, clients. So online therapists in Australia are actually missing out on work here courtesy of these big American conglomerates, a bit like I'm going to call them the McDonald's of online therapy. So the issue is um, with better help and and talk space, and I feel like I just need to talk to these two. So, you know, and I can, obviously they might end up coming knocking on my door about this, but, you know, we've got to have this conversation. They really shouldn't have been allowed by our Australian government in our space. If we can't do the same in reverse, why can they do it here? You know, why should they be allowed to counsel Australian citizens? citizens? Yeah. If we're not allowed to do the same in reverse, that shouldn't work. Logically, that makes perfect sense. You know, if um, it, it's kind of a trade restriction for Australian online therapists to be able to provide services into those communities. And um, meanwhile, on the other hand, um, all the rules and regulations that we have here in Australia are in a way not applicable to the US therapist. Is that is that yes. kind of the summary of the point there? Yes, that's exactly it. So I started out 10 years ago offering online therapy to clients, just small, then building, building, building. Um, and only two years ago, telehealth came in in Australia and um, psychologists have been allowed to get Medicare rebates, which is fair enough. Um, they're trained, that's all good, but they're not expected to be trained tele-mental health clinicians. I actually train people in that. But then you've got all these trained American clinicians counselling Australians when, you know, then we're not allowed to counsel them. So it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. On top of that, we've got Medicare that's allowed, which is fair enough on the one hand, but then trained online therapists are missing out of work on two fronts. Firstly, within Australia, courtesy of Medicare, and then outside Australia, courtesy of this kind of non-free trade, let's call it agreement, yeah. um, where it's kind of like free for the Americans but not for the Australians back and forth. So internationally I've found um, it's much better with the Europeans for me because there are no restrictions like that and then other people who might speak English throughout the world aside from obviously in um, North America. Is there enough momentum in Australia to actually bring that up at a political level, you know, where the um, the peak bodies, for example, could actually, you know, start to represent the members who are transitioning towards online therapy, for example? The buying public don't know what, what they're missing out on and the buying public are not aware that there are trained clinicians out in the field that are missing out on work that actually care about the outcomes in the online space. Yeah. And, and, you know, and given the uh, quality of our healthcare practitioners here in Australia, that could be a really useful export for um, for Australia, you know, in terms exactly. of GDP and growth and, um, and exactly. you know, continuing to involve the professions here in Australia as well. Exactly. And that is coming and I believe there is some movement happening there. But I'm going to put it out there. I'm literally the first Australian therapist registered with an international association as a professional member of a European association that is now accepting Australian members, but the only place in Australia you can do courses that would be to their standard is with me. Just putting that out there. 
if somebody's out there thinking about um, experimenting or exploring, um, evolving or moving, or, you know, enhancing that kind of clinical uh, yep. therapy setting into the online uh, setting yep. as well, I think it's fair to say you've sort of covered off some potential pitfalls. You know, you've got to yes. be mindful about um, where yep. the um, recipient of the service is. So if they're in the US yep. and Canada, that's going to be problematic. Yep. What else should somebody have in mind when they're thinking about um, going online and not necessarily internationally, but just, you know, no. just going online in general? What, what are some of the yeah. things that we should have in mind? First up, it's not as simple as just turning on your computer. I think that's the biggest pitfall. So, um, so what I've found, which is just intriguing to me, is I've found some of the most learned professionals struggle in this space. I've been training clinicians for the last three years of how to use this online space. And it's actually more practical and more process-driven than people think. And what that means is really it's about camera technique. It's about holding the space. It's not just as simple as, okay, I'll turn on Zoom or, you know, go to meeting or um, even your software, Yanni, or something else like that or doxamy or whatever you're using don't just think it's just about the tasks that's where people fall down is when they think it's just about tasks i'd agree with that um just in my uh lesser experience than uh, than you could self because i don't practice online over the years we've um, been working with a number of uh clients around the um online practice space and our technology has had to evolve to actually take into consideration those real world type of issues so some of the some of the reflections we've had for example and uh, maybe it's a good opportunity to see whether that's been a similar experience for yourself is that um, you know ultimately when when you start out you think it is uh, tech and we've noticed that with with our clients over the years Um, we've been in the space for a while and it's it's one of those things where you enable technology but then all of a sudden you have um, somebody who needs to use it and so yes. on their side, their, their uh, sort of, you know, a literacy of um, IT is going to be um, potentially a, a, an enabler or a barrier. Yes. Then there's sort of the culture, you know, the expectation. One mm. of the things that we noticed early in, in the piece was the idea that um, most clients uh, were used to having this kind of um, in-clinic reception, wait, your appointment's now due, yep. now attend your appointment uh, type yep. of thing. So that needed to be emulated in the uh, virtual space where uh, mm-hmm. virtual waiting rooms were implemented as opposed to just clicking and yeah. activating something and then waiting, which is probably yeah. what most of us deal with when we're doing um, you know, a Skype call or a Hangout or something like that. Yep. But now you're actually at an appointment around um, healthcare. Yes. And so being able to manage that person through that virtual waiting area uh, was something mm-hmm. that we needed to implement with our, uh, with our tools. And then there was also the the idea that um, as a moderator, the the health practitioner played a role in terms of um, activating the session and um, turning it off. And sometimes yeah. that was that sort of the beginning and end. Sometimes the video was not making the client feel in a good enough place to be able to work through the um, you know the the session. And so turning yeah. off video and just working with audio, for example, yeah. Yeah. Uh, type of things. Are they kind of similar reflections to I- yourself? So bring in disabilities, bring in other things like that. Then you're up for other challenges and and a lot of clinicians don't think about that. What would you do with a deaf client? What would you do with a blind client? What would you do with someone in a wheelchair? How do you do that? But actually there's more possibilities in this space 
because then they don't have to get to your appointment or go upstairs or that, those kind of things, yeah? So there's kind of more capacity for flexibility around this online space, but then the clinician has to be able to manage it and the clinician has to be able to think creatively and flexibly, not like, oh, but I only know how to do this as a webcam thing or but I only know how to do this, you know, with this particular type of client um, or your average client rather than someone with a disability. You can't just think that you're just going to get your average client every time because I've found every time is different and every single person who's come to see me online wants something different, which means that you have to be more expansive than less expansive in this space. Um, So definitely the experience um, really is something that you couldn't really put a price on in a sense. Uh, You know, you can learn it the hard way or um, you can actually sort of start to work with people like yourself who have a great deal of experience in actually doing it. And, um, And perhaps that's a good segue actually, Renee, to talk about Australian online therapy training that you're doing because this really blows me away how prolific you are at producing content because you've put together a whole certification program. Do you want to take us through the background to that and what that course, is that an accurate description? Can I describe it as a course or is it certifications? What's the best way for you to describe it? So firstly, I would explain it as professional development training. Right, okay. For the clinicians listening in um, and even the buying public um, that you have to be either a registered or acknowledged counsellor, psychotherapist, psychologist, social worker, or even just allied health clinician to be able to do my training. Um, so you have to have done some kind of undergraduate or postgraduate to be able to get yourself into the field first, yeah. And, you know, even a diploma of counselling is enough to do my course as well. You just need to have done some kind of formal qualification. You can't just like my courses aren't just set and forget from a point of view of like you to me or any of those kind of things. No. It just means you have to have trained in some kind of people skills or um, human services skills training before you come to me. Because firstly, um, ACTO, the Association for Counselling Therapy Online, they actually suggest minimum diploma of counselling for someone to do um, this kind of training. Why? They believe you need to be grounded in face-to-face work first before being able to hold the space online. And I actually agree with that. I think had I just kind of jumped on, and I had a student um, at one point who'd just been an online student, what she lacked was groundedness. And so you have the groundedness and you understand then that face-to-face space. Um, You understand how to hold the space face face-to-face in order to then pivot that to this online space by um, combining my previous knowledge of media. I think that's actually my, almost like my secret weapon, you know, in some ways, you know, how you've, you've got secret source, secret weapon, whatever you want to call it. So for me, my my ex-media training and all the, um, the work I did as a film researcher and all those kind of jazz, it's like be okay around the camera and not be worried about being in front of a camera. And then I bring that knowledge into my training as well. So I guess I bring multiple years, I'm 17 years as a therapist out in the field, both face-to-face and online and about 10 years online. You know, So I've kind of done this gradual, gradual transition to this space. And a lot of that has been around being a mum and wanting to have a flexible life around my kids too. And so that kind of added to that and I needed to make it work. And so um, I worked as an online educator 
I've brought that kind of knowledge in too. So I've got certificate four in training and assessment, for example. I've worked for TAFE and ACAP, the Australian College of Applied Psychology, if anyone doesn't know that. So there's just all of that kind of stuff comes into me designing these courses. So the design of my courses also comes from a lot of my knowledge of designing courses for TAFE. So I actually design courses for TAFE as well. This is why I get annoyed when people say, oh, it's just a course. Actually, no. (laughs) So all of my courses have learning outcomes. I would call them like steps and stairs towards greater levels of depth of learning of the online space. So you can almost dip your toe in or take it a little bit further or further again or further again. And I liken it to, um, and funny enough, there's four levels of competence where people are unconsciously incompetent at first. And that's effectively my level one course. They start realising, oh, gosh, I really don't really know what I'm doing and I've never heard about the GDPR. I've never heard about what I need to do regarding encryption or, or, or note-taking or other things like that. I haven't thought about, oh, how am I going to take notes or what should I do regarding all of this? You know, where should I store my data? Um, is it enough to have a filing cabinet? All these kind of things. And it starts blowing people's minds. So that's my level one. And that kind of opens them up to going, oh, wow, I hadn't even thought of all of this stuff. Then my level two course is a more advanced process-driven course of being able to hold this space. So when you've got a traumatised client or someone in crisis or someone who might be suicidal, how are you going to deal with that in this space? What do you need to do in order to hold the space properly for that person? So that's my level two. Then I've got level three where I actually teach people about how to run groups online. So level three is all about groups. So you can run then family groups, couples, relationship groups. You know, you can also run all sorts of things where you can run training. You know, if people are wanting to run their courses or training online, level four is where you're really kind of deeply then processing that and all of that training then adds up to a full certification now so you can either just choose to become an accredited level one accredited level two accredited level three but you have to do them in in that order you can't skip over any of them really and then you need to um to get to level four you need to have done all the others because basically if people don't have the basic skills or the basic knowledge they shouldn't then be trying to then be in a space that they don't know what they're talking about. And so that's kind of what I take people through. I guess that's um, all part of the journey, right? When when somebody is in a really advanced state um, because, yep. you know, you've um, been there and done that, you've also drawn yep. upon a variety of different um, experiences through the course of your career and you're able to actually um, produce now a methodology where people can iterate their way through the evolution. So they're continuously yes. improving or they're, they're doing that professional yes. development that you're referring to. Yeah. yeah, and then they can count that towards their professional, uh, you know, um, you have to do your professional development every year for, you know, the APS, the ASW and all that. They can count that towards all of that too, yeah. There's a lot of benefit in um, the uh, CPD uh, sort of pathway, but um but that aside, there's also an augmentation. There's sort of a, there's the clinical evolution around actually yep. meeting the demands of a modern um, society. Mm. You know, where yep. coming into a clinic 
uh, 100% of the time is um, something that might challenge a lot of people these days because we're so busy and cities are yep. hard to move around in, um, yep. you know, logistics take time. Getting that kind of anywhere, anytime uh, healthcare experience is quite the value proposition in my opinion. And so that's got to, I think, open you up to uh, perhaps a latent demand for therapy. Are you seeing that kind of diversity in, in the clients that you're doing? You were saying you're sort of 50-50 between the two models. Yeah. So I'm even doing almost what you do, I think, with um, your your video conferencing. So I'm really kind of augmenting and almost swinging between all of it. So, you know, people book in to see me on my website and most clients don't ring me up anymore. They will literally just often book and pay in advance because they can see I'm you know, prolific with blogging and writing and YouTube and then I usually contact them and say, do you want a face-to-face or an online session? That's kind of how the ball rolls, so to speak, yeah. What I'm picking up from what you're saying there is that in addition to um, providing therapy online and equipping yourself both in terms of your professional development and also yeah. the uh, the mode of delivering and, and sort of getting yourself used to, you are making yourself available in, in terms of your personal brand image and your your media image so to speak um, through the social channels and through um, you know the web type of channels do you talk to that and, and teach that as well is that part of your your coaching and- <laughs> yes yes though it's very um, it's very not rah-rah there's so many personal brand experts out there rah-rah-rah so I feel like I can talk to that on another level I feel like I bring it in authentically without being an authentic coach. There's so many authentic coaches, in inverted commas, that are just inauthentic. (laughs) So before being a therapist, I worked in media, but I also worked in branding and rock bands and all sorts of things. I mean, this is a classic where if you look at any of the kind of people in music, it's a brand. It's either a personal or a group brand. And you bring that into this kind of space I just see it like that where it's effectively, it's just an extension of me. Yeah. And what my skill set is, I don't do it to kind of be cheesy. I just go, okay, there's so many people who say, oh, you should, you know, schedule your posts and do this and do that. I actually don't. If people looked at my diary, they'd be impressed with how much I actually get out because my diary is really quite full. And often there is a bit of a wait at the moment that's just put, putting that out there. And and I guess there's this thing of just doing things when I can, fitting it in where I can. And yeah. I think if we, if we make it too manufactured, then it's not human. I mean, I use the words personal branding in a, in a literal sense. Everybody has a personal brand and yeah. some on one end of the spectrum are yeah. really creating a very structured image, yeah. you know, and that's yeah. what, that's what yeah. you're saying. It's kind of, it's moving it towards the, you know, somewhat um, contrived or synthetic, you know, version of or facet of self. What I relate to as personal brand in the context of healthcare is that you are you, so you're authentically you and you also possess skills and capabilities and you have an expertise. And being able to, um, you know, convey that through your online um, presence is where I think personal branding needs to be for um, for health um, practitioners because when the online journey typically starts with research, right? And people are um, interested in something, you know, and, and, you know, we associate it through keywords or um, short form sentences or some sort of, you know, context. And then when you're available then for that person and you provide the um, ease of engagement through the online capability and being able to deliver the online um, therapy, 
it's a real major differentiation in my opinion, you know, as far as the business model of it goes, you're just easy to use and, and as a result, you're easy to choose, you know, because it's convenient. It's, it's fits in with, you know, the, yep. you know, the, the, the goals, the lives, the schedules um, of the client, you know, as yep. opposed to the other way around. And so there's a really nice harmony in that. I thought of it like, well, I like to book in to see my doctor a number of years back and then they went, I need to do that for me. So I then went, I've got to put that on my website. And then I did my research and then I started rolling courses out and then people said, how did you do that? And then I said, because of this. It's a lot of things have happened organically to me but also because I'm thinking outside the box. It's not because I then wake up one day and say, hey, I've got to be like this kind of coach and this kind of this. It's like people say to me, Renee, can you do this? And usually I can because I've usually had some kind of experience in whatever they're asking me to do, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's um, that's amazing. And I, I really commend you on your commitment to your peers, you know, in terms of being able to draw upon your own lived experience there and actually translate into something that's easier to follow and, um, yep. you know, avoids the pitfalls and perhaps avoids taking the time that it takes to gain experience, you know, the hard way, you know, in doing it all yourself, you know, and kind of iterating. <laughs> And serving up something that's a bit more, you know, polished and uh, easier to sort of deal with and safer way yeah. to actually move into the online space. I feel like on that note, I've made a lot of mistakes as I've gone and then I've learned from it and now I bring it to other people of don't do that because I did that, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I feel like I've almost had to drag myself through the mud with some of these things and I've been thankful. I've, I've somehow I've stumbled into coaches, mentors, um, clinicians and colleagues and business people just giving me the right advice at the right points in time that has just steered the ship in the right way too. That's great, Renee. There's a question I asked towards the end of the episode, which is about how do you see us reimagining healthcare based on where you sit at the moment in the healthcare sector and, and you know, what you foresee as being the a more dominant way of doing healthcare over the next sort of, you know, let's say five, maybe to 10 years? I think my biggest issue is um, too much yang, not enough yin. And I'll liken it to something else. Um, So basically there's a lot of, let's just put it, male-dominated energy. So if we look back a couple of hundred years, um, particularly in Western life, we put women um, and birthing experiences into the hospitals and we, we kind of like gone down too far down the route of medicalising everything. And I think we're now starting to realise we've made some mistakes. That's what I want to put out there to everyone. But the problem is then pharmaceuticals came in, everything else came in, blah, blah, blah. You know, we all know how that one goes and how that's kind of bared out. There's now a lot more proof coming in in the alternative space where it's almost like this coming back around to maybe a yin meeting a yang. Um, that would be my hope. And I guess the yin energy coming in is the alternative approaches and I love the alternative approaches and I've even trained in some of those alternative approaches myself and and I have this sense that yin needs to meet yang again in healthcare and I guess I'm just likening it to that rather than saying um, what we need to do. It's more than having a good blend of both. There's a place for everyone and everything and if we're able to actually bring that yin-yang together then we can all work harmoniously together and acknowledge each other's strengths and weaknesses and then actually be merging the two and then saying, hey, I've got this 
client or patient, can you see them or vice versa, you know? I have this sense that that, that would be the ideal because there are times where I don't have the skills and abilities for certain clients but they come to me because they've gone through other different people and not realised that they probably should be seeing a kinesiologist, for example. Um, but then that kinesiologist won't get Medicare or other, other things like that. And so this kind of that's just an example. We need to have appreciation for people, what they study and what they've done rather than say, I'm better or worse or whatever. Um, I just see there's too much grandstanding in health at the moment and I'm really concerned about the future if it goes too much down the track of everything has to be Medicare um, because there will be no turning back from that. We need to be careful what we wish for and we need to be careful of how much government intervention we have with healthcare. Um, absolutely, we need it for day-to-day emergencies in hospitals and all those kinds of things. That's the crisis-driven healthcare. Yep. But we need prevention and we need cure. We can't have one or the other. We need both. Overseas in um, Scandinavia, it works a lot better. Um, there are a lot of other countries doing this better than us. We've taken al- almost the the both British and American models and almost combined the two here, which is not good. Um, We're going too much down a user pays um, model. So I feel like it needs to be a combination of the two. So, for example, in some parts of Scandinavia, you get two years of ongoing therapy paid for by the government, no questions asked. Um, You just put in your tax return and you get it back then. So there's there's just that's one example. Um, And... You shouldn't have to be diagnosed with something to go to a counsellor or a psychotherapist or a psychologist. You shouldn't have to be. And that's where we went wrong is having to be diagnosed with this. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting point of view, Renee. It's kind of um, it's, it's really resonating with me at so many different layers. I guess, um, you know, what you're describing is kind of being more holistic um, in yes. terms of how we... Um, uh, as as an individual, for example, if I'm interacting with healthcare, it'd be nice if that healthcare provider doesn't see me as as their client exclusively, and they want to keep me for as long as possible. Um, yep. It'd be nice if there was a mutually beneficial relationship where you know I'm improving and I'm also um, building a good relationship with that healthcare provider. But on the same token, if I need other specialisations you know, that person is actually helping refer me and connecting me into other parts of the healthcare system. And um, that's a trusted referral. You know, it's sort of building um, alliances. It's building a relationship around me or a team, if you will, which gets me to where I need to get to for now. But also it fills me with knowledge and techniques that I can actually improve my own life and be more accountable to myself in terms of my healthcare. But I'm also building uh, relationships. And yes. when I need those, that one or, or those healthcare providers down the road, I can come back to them because I've built that relationship of trust. Yep. They're my team, you know, they're, they're yep. who I've actually um, developed my healthcare strategy with yep. and I've yep. learned from and I've improved yep. as a result of it. Yep. Um, and it's yep. more outcome driven, but it's, it's, it's sort of built around the, the idea of um, not financial incentive based healthcare, but actually um, mutually beneficial outcomes, you know. Uh, and you know both for yeah. the for the recipient of the healthcare services and the service providers themselves. Is that sort of a a summary yeah, th- of what you're describing? I think that could work, but I think mine is a bit more broad than what you're suggesting. I think what I'm saying is it should be all about client choice. So 
I have some clients who will come to me and they'll also see an osteopath at the same time. It shouldn't necessarily have to be, okay, you can only see your psychologist or counsellor now and then see your osteopath later. Often you end up doing the best work when you're seeing multiple clinicians at the same time. It's almost like resolving a whole bunch of issues at the same time or it might work that you just see one person now and one person later. It needs to be run and led by the client or consumer or patient. It, it just cannot be run by the government because then effectively it's paternalising um, your choice and paternalising the choice then takes away the choice for the person actually seeking help. Yeah, I get exactly where you're coming from now. So that is about empowering the individuals to yeah. um, be accountable and be responsible for the healthcare, but equipping yeah. them with access to the right people to exactly. get the knowledge and get the expertise that they need over time through those specialisations. Yes. Terrific. Yeah. I think that's a great vision. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.